The reading of God's Word this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20 and Mark chapter 2. Hear the Word of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? Now he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it is appropriate that we would now bow our heads and give thanks. Uh, to give thanks for all that we have rehearsed so far in our service. That you are the holy God. We depend upon you and your presence for you to join us in this worship. We depend upon your gift of your Son for our salvation. And we have also received from your hand many gifts and so we return these tithes, these offerings, and these gifts to you, asking that you would use them, that you would use them in order that your kingdom would be revealed in this place and throughout the world, and in order that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we now have to sit beneath your word. And Father, we pray that you would give us a great confidence in sitting beneath your word and also a great humility, that we would be humbled to know that we are but your creatures, your creation, and we were made to be still and to listen to your voice, to hear and obey. Father, we pray that we would also be given great confidence as we sit beneath your word, because we know that when you open your mouth to speak, you call things into being that were not. The very first page of your word tells us that you spoke and created everything. And your son, when he came and walked the face of this earth, he spoke to the lame and they were healed, to the blind and they received their sight, to the deaf and they were made to hear. He spoke even into death itself and the tombs. And by the power of his voice, the dead were raised to life. Father, we pray this morning that we would hear your word with that kind of confidence. To know that as you speak this morning, you have the power to call from death to life. You have the power to convict and the power to comfort in your voice. Father, we pray that we would this morning sit beneath your word and that we would see 
the Lord Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, The children are now dismissed to Children's Church. Children ages 3 to 6 can make their way to the back um, at this time. Also, I realized when Trace was reading the passages this morning that I made a mistake and cut one of the passages off early. So before we get into our sermon, if you'll just let me read a few more verses of that passage in Mark chapter 2. We, the passage leaves off in verse 27, but verse 28 says this. Jesus was speaking, he said, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, the very next verses, we read this. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. God's Word. Thank you for listening to that, and I apologize that that wasn't in your bulletin. Um, well, we are continuing this morning, um, especially if you're joining us for the first time, we're, commending, we're continuing a series through the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we've made it to the Fourth Commandment about the Sabbath. But we've been saying each week that God has given us His law to make us deeply aware of our need of Jesus, because these commands act like a mirror for us. Um, They show us who we are, and in showing us who we are, they show us our brokenness, and they show us our need, and they drive us to Jesus, because only in Jesus can we find grace, only in Jesus can we find life. Um, But finding life and grace in Jesus, we come back to these commands, right? We come back to these commands, though, not to earn God's approval, because we understand that we already have that in Jesus. We come back here in order that Jesus would shape us by his His grace, that he would restore our dignity, that he would restore our humanity. And so in the fourth commandment, God tells us that we were made for a certain rhythm, Um, When you're at a concert, uh, thousands of other people with you, and the artist that you've gone to see comes to the front of the stage and maybe in a bridge of music starts making these huge, exaggerated clapping motions with his hand. Everybody knows what that means. That artist is calling, that singer is calling upon you, the audience, to join into the rhythm, to be in sync with the rhythm that is being played on stage and is thumping through the speakers at you, right? Um, And it's, you know, when thousands of people find the rhythm together and when thousands of people are in sync with the music and clapping along, there is a certain beauty to that, right? But rhythm is really around us all the time. I mean, every day has its own rhythm, 
today's going to, tomorrow's going to be the same as today. Um, you know, there is a, a certain rhythm to life. There are seasons. Uh, there is birth, life, and death, right? Rhythm, it breeds in us expectation, right? It, um, the continuity and flow to life. Occasionally, something will come along in our lives that's unique, maybe an opportunity or maybe some, uh, some introduced drama or even trauma to our lives, right? And we can handle it. it if it interrupts us briefly, if it interrupts our rhythm briefly, but for it to go on too long is not good for us. And we talk about how we can't wait to get back to a routine, and back to a rhythm, right? If you don't believe me, ask a stay-at-home mom in the waning weeks of summer, right? She's so ready for school to start back so that they can get back into a rhythm. The fourth commandment, I think, is certainly about rhythm. It's saying that you and I, we were built for a rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, work and rest. In your mind, if you return to that imagery of the concert, right, uh, that we were talking about earlier. It's beautiful and it sounds wonderful when everyone is in sync and finding the same rhythm. But what happens when at the concert you're seated next to the guy who cannot find the rhythm, right? It is absolutely annoying. It's jarring. It's awkward. And if you pay too much attention to that guy, you will never find the rhythm yourself, right? Um, So outside of this rhythm that God has created for us, it's jarring with our humanity. It's like fingers on a chalkboard, right? It's not right. It's out of sync with who God meant us to be. And so if we step outside of this rhythm, I'm saying, We are never going to find work or rest to be as meaningful, as purposeful, and enjoyable for us as God intends it to be. And so we just have two points this morning. I want you to understand that we were made to work and that we were made to rest. So first, this command is telling us that we were made to work. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. What is work, right? Work is cultivation, right? It's taking the potential and making it actual, right? It's shaping some aspect of creation. So whether you have a career or you do volunteer work or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a student in school, you were made to work. You were made to cultivate. You were made, you were made in order to make the potential actual. You know, we need to get away from viewing work as simply a means to an end and embrace the goodness of work itself. See, viewing work as simply a means to an end, I'm suggesting, really despises our humanity and the way God made us. See, working to get a paycheck or working to gain status or power or working to earn approval or gain security for yourself or or to just work for the weekend, we might say, is to treat work as a means to an end and really to work against our own humanity. In this command, God of all things points us back to the garden and back to the creation, right? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, right? God himself worked, he's saying in this command. 
And he put man and woman into a paradise of perfection, into a garden, in order that they would work, in order that they would cultivate, in order that they would make the potential actual. There is meaning and purpose in work itself. I know it may sound weird to you that I would say this, but, um, but I really enjoy mowing my grass. Um, I know some of you hate it, um, but I enjoy it. And I, I love being able to cut my perfect, neat little straight rows in my yard. And when I'm done cutting the yard, I grab a glass of Gatorade and I sit on my porch and I look at my yard and I'm proud of my yard. It looks awesome, right? This command, I think, explains the reason for that. Why I would like to sit on my porch and feel congratulated about a job well done and find some satisfaction in the work that I've accomplished, right? This command is saying I was made for that. I was made to work and feel that satisfaction. God himself did. Genesis 1, right? After every day of creation, there's this refrain where he stood back from what he had done and he was satisfied in what he had done, right? He saw that it was good. And it all, in that creation account, it builds to this crescendo, right? To the, to the seventh day where he rested, where he stood back from all his creating and rested. You were built to feel that. To know that kind of satisfaction, deep satisfaction, whether you're a student, a stay-at-home mom, a web designer, an engineer, an architect, a lawyer, whatever. But here's the rub, okay? We don't live in paradise and perfection. And so that's why mowing my grass ceases to be fun in August. Because in August, it's 100 degrees outside. And I'm not drinking Gatorade at the end of mowing, but during my mowing in order that I can stay alive, right? And the grass is dying and the weeds are growing and moles are digging through my yard, right? There are problems is what I'm saying. Our theology of work, it needs to be robust, but it also has to be nuanced in a fallen world. Work is often frustrated. You know, for us to try doesn't necessarily mean that we will succeed, Oftentimes, our trying ends in failure. Work itself at times seems, seems to fight with us and wrestle back against us. Yeah, because the first man and woman, when they stepped out of God's des- design for them, when they stepped out and they sinned against him, what happened? When that happened, you read the story, creation itself started coming undone at the seams, right? The ground was now cursed. Thorns and thistles started to taking over, right? And it was only then by painful sweat and labor that we would cultivate. See, if your view of work isn't nuanced like this, with the reality of brokenness, when that reality crashes into you, you will do one of two things. In your cynicism, You will despise work and end up only treating it as a means to an end. Or you'll go the other direction and you'll try to to build an identity for yourself through your work. And what will end up happening is that you'll end up working yourself into the ground in despair. But here's how work in a broken world becomes redeemable. Two verses from Paul's letter to the Colossians. 
Colossians 3, 22 and 23. He writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. See, the only way to find true satisfaction is to embrace this rhythm and see that your work is for the Lord. Because of the fall, your work will never be everything it was meant to be. But to work for the Lord means that you can see goodness in your work, whatever your work is. And you can know that your work matters and that it will last and that it will count for something. In the old classic movie, Chariots of Fire, um, there are these two track athletes, and their names are Harold Abrahams and Eric Little, and they both have the same job. Roughly, they both have the same ability, and they have the same opportunities presented before them. And in the end, they both receive rewards for their labors. They both earn gold medals. But the movie is contrasting these two individuals. The story is contrasting them. In in particular, through these two scenes, there's one scene that involves a conversation that Eric Little has with his sister. See, he's a Christian, and she wants him to go to China to be a missionary. And in this moving scene with a Scottish accent that I'm not going to try to impersonate, he tells her that one day he does believe that he will go to China and be a missionary. Um, But he's telling her right now, he realizes that the work God has called him to do is to be an athlete and to run. And so this is how he says it. He says, Jenny, Jenny, I believe that God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Okay, but the contrast comes in here, and it's set up with this other scene with Harold Abrahams, right? Abrahams, he's talking with his coach, who's also his friend, right before a race, and this is what he says in contrast to Eric Little. This is what he says to his coach. I'm 24, and I've never known contentment. Right? He says, I'm forever in pursuit And I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Same job, same opportunity, same ability, same rewards. Yet one is empty and the other feels God's pleasure. What's the difference? Abraham's, he is working, but he's working for, he's working himself into the ground. He's running in the hopes of getting an identity. He has run himself into the ground and into despair and he's never known contentment. He's chasing, but it's like trying to grab the wind and it keeps slipping through his fingers. Eric Little is different. He has an identity as a child of God. He realizes that God made him for this. Right? He knows why. Ultimately, he doesn't run to please his sister or anyone else. Because if you heard that quote, you realize that he's saying, I don't even run to please myself. Right? He runs to please God. And doing what he was made to do, he feels God's pleasure. Whether he gets a medal or not, it doesn't matter. It's unfair to be so brief here, um, but I've got to say something to help you connect the dots and try to make some application for your life. So I'm going to do it like this. There's this question, what does all this stuff mean for me as a lawyer or an artist or an architect or um, a web designer or a salesman or a doctor. 
one day, someday, one day, someday, heaven will come down to earth. And the new heavens and the new earth will be born. And when it comes to your work, you need to start dreaming and using your imagination by asking yourself, not what would, but what will. What will a redeemed Memphis look like one day? Right? What will last? Right? How will people interact with one another in that day? What will perfected creativity and music and architecture look like and sound like to us in that day? To work for the Lord is to begin working for that beauty right now, no matter your career path. So you have to dream a little. Don't imagine that you need to get into the ministry in order to work for the Lord. Imagine what your work will look like. When one day, someday, Jesus returns and everything is redeemed and made new. Okay, second and last point. We've got to deal with the second part of this command, which completes the rhythm for us, right? Which is rest. You are made for work, but you are also made to rest. The theme of rest is everywhere in the Bible. You are made for rest. You need to enter into rest, right? You were made to enjoy rest. One preacher refers to what he calls the REM of the soul. And uh, in sleep, REM is the deepest state of rest possible when sleeping. Six days of work, but only one day of rest. Um, this command is not about the length of rest, but about the depth of rest. You hold on to that thought for a few minutes. Back to the command and back to the creation story and the rhythm here. Verse 11. God rested on the seventh day and he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, I want you to use your imagination here. Even before work was painful, even before it was frustrated, even before it was filled with sweaty exhaustion, rest was good. Rest was necessary. You were made for that rest before work was ever broken. You know, not much information is given to us about Adam's first day, Adam and Eve's first day. But I do find it interesting that God created man on the sixth day and then rested on the seventh day. Because if I understand that right, that means Adam and Eve's first day on the job as representatives for all of humanity was a vacation day, was a holiday. They were made to rest as soon as they were created. Now, think about the context of Exodus where we see these Ten Commandments. God, in giving these commands, he was speaking to a people newly delivered from a lifetime of slavery in Egypt. Right? None of these people knew liberation. They'd been enslaved for 400 years. And you remember that story of their slavery. How did Pharaoh... Seek to oppress them and break them. He upped the brick-making quota. Right? He made them work all the time. I mean, Exodus 1 says he used the people ruthlessly. Pharaoh was saying, your bodies and your time, they belong to me. And I'm going to use you ruthlessly. Now delivered by God, standing at the foot of this mountain, 
Here's what God says in this commandment. Your bodies and your time belong to me. But I only mean you could. You see that? He is saying, I am going to enforce blessing upon you. Right? I'm going to demand that you stop working and you rest. Beautiful grace and mercy in this command. But what does this have to do with us? I mean, we're not slaves. Or are we? Right? David Brooks, New York Times writer and commentator on American culture, he writes that Americans are the hardest working people on the face of the earth, working more hours per year than even the Japanese, and working the equivalent of 10 weeks more per year than the Europeans. And for the most part, we take pride in that. You know, lazy Europeans. Um, No wonder they're in such trouble. Um, The busiest people on the face of the earth. What I'm trying to get across is, Just because you can't see the shackles doesn't mean they aren't there, right? Slavery to a paycheck and ever-increasing materialism is a brutal taskmaster for us. It usually takes a heart attack or a completely estranged family for a workaholic to realize he needs to slow down, right? Enslaved to our hobbies, another author writes a book and says that we are amusing ourselves to death. The wonderful irony (laughs) that those people who post stories on Facebook uh, uh, about people quitting Facebook and getting rid of their digital addiction, um, you know, and a career for an identity and approval from your peers for success, the taskmasters are everywhere around us. We do not know how to stop. We do not know how to put down our work or our Facebook statuses or our reputations because they are controlling us. The temptation for most everyone when it comes to this command is to immediately start asking, what does this mean I can and can't do on Sunday? Um, It's to narrow the command and make it more manageable for us. And that's what the Pharisees had done. Right? They enlisted 39 specific types of activity you could not participate in on the Sabbath day. If you, you could not drag a stick on the ground because if you were dragging a stick on the ground, you might accidentally be, um, be cultivating the ground. You couldn't plowing the ground. You couldn't wear a bow in your hair because that would be carrying a burden. So in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees got really upset when they saw Jesus' disciples reaping a harvest when they were picking grains of wheat to eat, right? But Jesus responded in verse 27 by saying this, the Sabbath was not made for man. Did I get that right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I knew it was in here in my notes somewhere. Here's what he was saying. It's good that I can catch myself on stuff like that. Um, The Sabbath wasn't made To crush man. The Sabbath wasn't made to tie man's hands is what Jesus is saying. It was given to him for his good. Of all things, the Sabbath wasn't intended to make him a slave again. Right? Same passage in Mark, and this is why I I read the the extended version uh, that's not in your bulletin. The Pharisees provoked Jesus to anger again. Why? Because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. And this made Jesus furious with the Pharisees, right? They wouldn't show mercy because they didn't want to break the Sabbath. This was a new kind of slavery, right? 
In restoring this man's hand, do you realize what Jesus was saying? He was saying the Sabbath is all about restoration. The Sabbath is about recreation. The Sabbath is about mercy. The Sabbath is about undoing brokenness in the world. It's not just a day of inactivity, right? But a day focused on mercy. In the command itself, there's even a view to others, right? And not just other people, even animals are to be given rest. Okay, but listen, Jesus also says something important in verse 28, which is why I read this to you. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, here's what he's saying here. He's saying, the Sabbath is my day. Or he's saying, the Sabbath is all about me. Right? He is the Lord of everything, including time. And in this rhythm, he has created for you. He has given you a day for worshiping him, a day to be reminded of your identity in him. Poor Harold Abrahams worked himself into the ground seeking an identity in his work. You were made for something bigger than just yourself. Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon comment that this commandment is ruthlessly countercultural. It is. Because in submitting to its rhythm, a rhythm that keeps coming around with alarming regularity, right? We are reminded that there is a king who graciously reigns and rules over everything. And this king demands that we stop working, that we rest, right? That we remember our identity in him. It's countercultural. David Brooks, the New York Times guy I mentioned earlier, writes that Americans are relentlessly busy because all our energy is merely a part of some manic drive to avoid the deep and profound issues of life. He's saying we need the distractions. We need the Facebook notifications, he's saying, the entertainment that amuses us to death, the extra work, because in the silence and the stillness, Reflection happens, and we begin to see who and what we really are. And that silence terrifies us. We do not want to face that. Right? We've seen it. The language in this command, it forces us to look back, right, to creation. But the language of Jesus forces us to look forward, okay? That man was made for the Sabbath, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, The command wasn't just pointing back, but it was pointing forward to Jesus. The theologian Edmund Clowney writes that God's creation, rest, and the Sabbath that marks it point to another rest, the rest of redemption. The author of Hebrews, though, puts it better. He writes, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. Now we who believe have entered that rest. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. See, to narrow the law, to try and make it manageable becomes a new kind of slavery, and it's a religious slavery. If I work hard enough, God will love me, right? If I perform well enough, God will approve of me, and I'll be able to rest. 
But the author of Hebrews is saying something very different than that, isn't he? He is saying, stop working. Stop your striving and rest. And he even tells us how to do that very straightforwardly. He says, we who have believed enter that rest. The God who came to live a perfectly righteous and obedient life has accomplished everything for you. Resting in his sacrifice for you, in his righteousness for you, you can finally rest, the author of Hebrews is saying. Now you have an identity that can never be touched by circumstances. Now you have an identity that can never be lost. A small favorite, overly used illustration of mine um, perhaps because of the image that it creates for me. A friend of mine told me about this time that he was in Walmart. And, um, and he was in Walmart, and we've all seen and experienced crying children in Walmart. Um, it's painful, it's awkward, you never know what to do about it. Um, but usually it's over a child throwing a fit over something that that child wants, right, that he sees on display. But my friend was, was explaining that he was in Walmart one day and he heard these blood-curling screams of this child in the aisle next to him. And it was horrific. So he ran around the corner and he was expecting to see the big temper tantrum, right? But that's not what he saw. What he saw was a young boy who had somehow managed to get separated from his mother. And he was there all alone on that aisle. And so my friend standing there trying to figure out what he's supposed to do in that situation. He says, immediately this mother ran around the corner of the aisle and she scooped this child up into her arms. This, okay, this is why that image means so much to me because he said immediately, he he said he was watching this. He said within 30 seconds, that red-faced, panicked, screaming, cheeks Stained with tears, crying child was asleep in 30 seconds in his mother's arms. Look, it's not the length of rest. It's the depth of rest that matters. This commandment, it speaks to your humanity in creation and it points you to your redemption in Jesus. See, I think this commandment, it is pushing you forward. It is bidding you rest in the arms of Jesus to fall asleep in his arms, knowing that he has done everything for you. See, this commandment, it cannot be obeyed and it cannot be enjoyed without resting from your work and trusting in the work of Jesus in your place. This commandment says you desperately need a rhythm. You need to find the only rhythm that fits your humanity, made to work and rest. And it needs to come around again and again, like maybe weekly in your life, to remind you of your identity again and again, because you are so prone to forget that. And I am too. Joy Davidman, C.S. Lewis' wife, uh, she reflected that it's a terrible thing to make the church a horrible bore. Right? She contends that the church must love, must be love and beauty and delight beyond all other delights. Some of you love the Puritan writers. They were great about many things, um, but they were also sinners. And I think Joy Davidman reflects rightly about the Puritans' approach to the Sabbath day by writing that the Puritans preferred negative methods. 
They believed you could make people enjoy God by forbidding them to enjoy anything else. See, they wanted this day kept holy, but they went about it by entirely negative methods, sapping it of all joy. Realize that this Sabbath day is pointing you to perfect rest in Jesus, who loved you and fulfilled the law for you so that you can now rest. And when you get that, you will begin to love and delight in him before anything and everything else. What I'm saying is, when you get that, it'll begin to topple the idols of your life. And you'll begin to learn how to really enjoy the things in this life you were made to enjoy. Right? Not to get an identity, but to please the Lord. And when you begin to work in him like that, you'll begin to feel his pleasure. There's a ton more that I wanted to say this morning, but I'm going to end like this. Let me leave you with this. You need to learn to rest from your work. Right? From your work, the gospel calls you to stop and rest in Jesus. To regularly take your hands off your life. To, in your life, leave things unfinished until Monday morning. Right? And, and be reminded in that moment when you leave those things unfinished, that on the cross, Jesus himself cried out for you. It is finished. Weekly, regularly, you need to come here and be reminded of that. And if you are, the church will begin to cease to be a bore in your life. And you will find it something to delight in because it proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you also need to not just learn how to rest from your work, but I think you also, we also need to learn how to rest toward our work. Here's what I mean. Adam's first day in paradise was a day of rest. And when you rest on Sundays, you need to make it your habit that this would be a day for you to remember your identity in Jesus and to remember that he has given you a small corner of his world to cultivate and shape according to his redemption. Not to get an identity out of it, but really to honor him and to live before him. Finally, a lot of us, I know, are irregular about gathering with others for church. You cannot obey this commandment in isolation. You need other people. Listen to this genius quote. The Sabbath has striking economic implications. It is for the rich who are often oppressed and harassed in their riches and their accumulation. It is for the poor who are often overburdened in their work. Even animals are given rest. On a weekly basis, the ambiguity of work is brought to the community's attention. We experience just for a day a world where there are not such great gaps between rich and poor. In our world, only the rich get time off. The poor have to work two jobs to make ends meet. But on Sabbath, all this is rectified, judged, and rearranged. And we are reminded that our economic systems are divinely ordained. We create capitalism or socialism. God created and commanded Sabbath. It's an insightful quote, but even more than just the economic implications, right? Perhaps more simply and more profoundly, this day reorders our world and reminds us that the, that the ground at the foot of the cross, it is level. No matter who you are, rich or poor, ugly or beautiful, smart or dumb, successful or failure, com- comfortable or burdened, moral or amoral. Come to the cross and let us rest together in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have had 
together in your word this morning. Um, We do pray that your spirit would take up your word and write it upon our hearts, that you would remind us regularly that we were made to work, we were made to rest. Father, we thank you for the way you speak to us in this command and push us back to creation to consider our design. But we thank you as well for using this command to push us forward to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus and to, into the rest that we have in him. Father, we pray that you would build up your people this day by your word. Remind us of our identity in Jesus, that we are, we are broken, it is true, but we are also far more loved and approved and secure than we could have ever dreamed possible because of the person and work of Jesus in our place. Amen.